is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Ken Charles from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. The FDA surprisingly has declined to take a position on vaccine booster shots. Officials in L.A. County have approved new rules, and customers at indoor establishments like bars and nightclubs will soon have to show proof of vaccination. Listen, I'm not going to a bar or nightclub regardless, but okay, <laughs> fine. That's what they want to do. And the results of California's recall election seem to show that residents in one of the largest states in the United States are in favor of the strict rules to combat COVID-19. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see in light of the uh, recall election that uh, Gavin Newsom won whether or not we're going to have state mandates for vaccines. Well, L.A. Uh, County came out less than 24 hours after the recall was over and Gavin Newsom had won and they immediately upped their policy. You're right, it'll be interesting to see what the state does. And the mask requirement on planes is making flying a hassle for many passengers and especially the flight attendants working with those flights. All right, so let's start with booster shots. We keep getting conflicting reports on the need for boosters. Today, the FDA's scientific staff weighed in by not weighing in. They decided not to endorse or reject the idea of booster shots. Dr. Helen Kipp Talbot is an internist and infectious disease specialist at Vanderbilt University. She's also a member of the CDC's advisory committee on immunization practices. Doctor, is there any consensus in the scientific community on the need for booster shots? Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> That's a very honest answer and very refreshing. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I, I always say this at the start of every interview. We are learning as fast as we can. Um, it seems like a lifetime um, that we've been dealing with COVID, but in all reality, it's been less than two years and this virus has come up. It's been completely different in many ways. And we are really learning as we go. And I think everyone is at different parts of that learning curve and asking different questions. I think the questions of boosters opens up a whole nother set of questions. One is what kind of disease are we trying to prevent? Two, are we trying to be fair and share vaccines with the rest of the world? Three, what vaccine do we use as a booster if you've already had a different vaccine? Four, what if you got the one dose vaccine? Do you need a booster? So I think that one question opens up many, many more. So you, you just ticked off all the easy stuff. <laughs> so, so, but you know, you, you know what I, I think is confusing, uh, especially people in this country, is they look at what's happening in other countries, right? Uh, they look at Israel, where they've started uh, giving boosters to those 50 and over. They look at the UK, where they're planning to give it, I think, to 60 or 65 and, and older. And I think that what Americans are saying is, well, wait a minute. You know, the Israelis, they've got good scientists. The British, they've got good scientists. How come their scientific community is saying this needs to be done now? And our scientific community in this country seems to be holding up a yellow kind of go slow sign. I think the situation is different in every country. I think the main driver for hospitalizations in our country is not the fact that people only receive two doses. Is that the fact that half of our population hasn't received any dose? So one of the big holdups in the U.S. and many scientists and epidemiologists really would rather we spend the time and effort 
pushing for the first and second doses in those that still have questions about vaccines. And that will be a major um, effective way um, to prevent hospitalizations in this country. Adding a third dose is giving that dose to the people who've already lined up for their first two vaccines and are probably very likely to wear a mask. And so they're not the ones we're seeing in the hospital necessarily, there are a few, but the majority of the hospitalizations, ICU stays, ventilator use, ECMO and death are those that have not yet been vaccinated. So here now, I'm sorry, but but I was gonna ask you, I mean, here's kind of maybe a a tough question for you. So if somebody listening now uh, to this, uh, 65 or older, who's thinking, okay, so what do I do? Do I wait until the government says it's time to get a booster or, you know, there's something like a million point two, I believe, uh, Americans who have already decided on their own to go and get one because apparently it's not that difficult to, to do. What should those people do? That is a tough question. Not because it's a tough to answer, but because I don't know that I can answer it as a voting member of ACIP. Ah, well, uh, that's that, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so put yourself if if you were giving advice to your dad, uh, and oh, that's pre- cheating. That <laughs> is totally yes, I cheating. I know, but 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 presuming that your dad is older than sixty-five, and and if he's uh, hopefully still with us, what advice if he came to you and said, "What should I do? Should I wait, or should I go to my local CVS and get a, that third shot?" You would say to your dad, what? If you go now and there is an adverse event, you will not be covered for any liability. Oh, that's mm. an interesting answer. Uh, can you explain that more? Because I think a yeah, lot of people so don't. Go ahead. With the introduction of the vaccine in the U.S., the PrEP Act allowed um, any adverse events that were serious to be covered for potential compensation. And that applies both for the person who receives the vaccine and the person who administered the vaccine. Um, So you wouldn't receive compensation if you administer it, but you'd be protected from any lawsuit. So if you use the vaccine in any way that is not currently recommended by the governing bodies, you lose that protection. I see. Okay. You know, a lot of people have floated the idea also of, with that in mind of like, if you haven't been vaccinated and you get sick, you should not have your insurance covered because you've been given the information to get the vaccine. And it's basically your own fault. You got sick. Yes. And actually, there's um, some employers have said, if you don't get vaccinated, we're actually going to raise your insurance premium. So do you, since you mentioned, and and since we mentioned that you are on the CDC's advisory committee when it comes to vaccine practices, do you anticipate that this is going to be a a, a tough, when it comes from the FDA, and I guess that's the pecking order, right? It goes from the FDA then over to, to the CDC. Do you expect it's going to be a rather difficult session or two or more? Oh, yeah, I do. I really do think <laughs> it's going to be difficult because we have to take into all those considerations that I mentioned earlier. Do we hog the vaccine in the US instead of sharing it? Do we divert our public health officials from giving third from giving vaccines to first and second doses to third doses? Um, I, I think it's gonna be a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, um, a lot of requests for more data. 
I think there's a list of things that we would like to see. So I don't think it's going to be an easy answer. And it all is dependent on what the FDA says. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Helen Kipe-Talbert, internist and infectious disease specialist at Vanderbilt University. Also, as you heard, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. More and more businesses starting to require customers show proof of vaccination. Here in Los Angeles County, officials have announced that people going to indoor portions of bars and nightclubs and wineries and lounges and more will soon need to be vaccinated, but it doesn't apply to restaurants. And by the way, what exactly is a lounge? I haven't been in a lounge. I don't even know if I've ever been in a lounge. What's a lounge? A fancy bar? I know. If you have a, if you have a couch in a restaurant, is it a lounge? Yes, actually, yes. (laughs) If you have a couch in a restaurant, it is a lounge. Now I get it. (laughs) You know, but if you're not lounging, let's say at outdoor mega events with ten thousand or more people, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID nineteen test. I think this makes us the largest county in the United States with that kind of stringent restrictions. Dr. Howard Hugh chairs the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He and his team at USC have been working on COVID surveillance in partnership with LA County this year. So doctor, does this piecemeal approach because it keeps happening a little and a little really make sense? That's a great question. I mean, let's take vaccination first. I mean, there's no question based on now many months of terrific scientific data that the vaccine works and it's safe for the vast majority of people. And it also is very clear that the epidemic is wreaking havoc, but almost entirely confined to the folks who are not vaccinated. Uh, so it, this is makes public health sense. Um, why it might be implemented in one set of venues, but not another, I think that gets to the implementation part. There's always practical considerations on how well it can be enforced in one venue or another or how well it will be received. And that's something that, you know, I think that the public health authorities have to take into account as well. You know, it, it, it seems like, you know, with this uh, opposition in some quarters against uh, vaccine mandates, and they always point to, well, you know, the scientists don't know everything. And look, they keep changing their minds. And so we have these new mandates coming out. And uh, yeah, there might be practical considerations to why you've got to, to have the vaccine proof here, but not so much here, even though it feels like the same kind of thing. Would it be better to err on the side of caution and just go all in or all out on the vaccine mandates for all these areas? Um, I, I mean, on some level, I think from a population health level, from my scientific level, I think that does make sense. Um, and I do understand, you know, that there are subgroups of the population that are cautious or even against it for a whole number of different reasons. But I think the science is pretty clear. Um, I think another factor that, you know, has to be taken into account is what we're beginning to call the epidemiology of disinformation, which is that there's whole segments of the population that just are skeptical or decline vaccination because they're seeing all sorts of bad information on the internet or elsewhere that says that the vaccine's unsafe or that it does something uh, you know, untoward. And that's disinformation. Uh, and I, you know, we have to stand by that and stand stick with the science. And I think vaccinations make sense for everybody, depending on how we can roll it out and uh, make it effective for all segments of the population. You know, I was wondering when I first saw the order a little while ago, 
specifying bars, wineries, that sort of thing. But leaving out, uh, you know, restaurants, it, it occurred to me, and I wonder what, what your thoughts are on this, that, uh, as you know, the, the vaccination rate among younger people in their 20s is lagging behind older people. Younger people, mm-hmm. not exclusively, but they do tend to frequent bars and lounges, uh, you know, more than older folks who tend to go more to restaurants. So I'm wondering if this is aimed partly at trying to give uh, a much needed incentive for younger people. People to get vaccinated if they want to go to their bars again. I think that's a great guess, uh, and it would be really interesting to see whether the uh, the Department of Health, Public Health, would um, would find that as a uh, <laughs> as a reasonable guess as to why the <laughs> policy was implemented in this way. Uh, and so, of course, there's, I'm sure there's sensitivities all around in um, in the you know, clarifying exactly why they chose to roll out the policy this way. But I think that's as reasonable a guess as any. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Howard Hu, chairing the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at the USC Keck School of Medicine. Coming up after a short break, it looks like tough COVID-19 measures actually getting uh, quite popular in California. There was a big recall election in California the other day. Governor Gavin Newsom fought off the recall election with more than 60 percent of voters choosing to keep him in office. One of the big issues supporters of the recall consistently brought up, the governor's handling of the pandemic. In fact, last night in his you know, victory speech, I guess you would call it, he talked about it was a vote, yes, for science, yes, for the restrictions that have been going on, and yes, for, you know, mandates and other things that have been going on in the state. California has had stricter rules than a lot of other states to deal with COVID, and the results seem to indicate that those policies are very broadly popular here in the state. Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Doctor, do you think this makes it easier now for Governor Newsom and California to implement many more and tougher on COVID rules and mandates? I think, you know, none of us want any of those things, but I think what the public has said is we want to follow the best science and we want to balance what's best to save lives and keep people out of hospitals with getting our economy as open as possible and getting our schools open. And I think they they render judgment on the governor that he's done that about as well as you can do. And I'm I'm in sync with that. I you know, there's there's no win here. There's no way to do this perfectly well. And there are things you can look at over the last 18 months and and critique. But overall, I think they have followed the science and the proofs in the pudding. The the number of people that have died in California of COVID, of course, is tragic, but is substantially lower than that of other states that had very different ways of handling it. Uh, do you think maybe a big part of it is this kind of rumbling, this undercurrent, you can kind of feel it, of, of some people who, you know, they got vaccinated and their patience is running thin with the people who are refusing to get vaccinated and refusing to follow masks. And maybe they're a little bit fed up and they're like, yeah, like you say, they don't like these protocols. They don't like having to wear the mask, but they're kind of tired of the people holding us back, so to speak, from uh, uh, reaching herd immunity. Do you think that's a, a factor here? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I I think everybody's tired of this thing. Would love to have it go away. I think earlier in the summer there was some criticisms of the governor and of the president that you know the sort of mission impossible issue, excuse me, mission accomplished issue, not mission impossible. That that you know declaring victory. 
But, you know, I said the same thing in May. It really looked like we were in pretty good shape. And then we had another curveball and and the governor appropriately reacted to it and said, you know, I, I told you it'd be OK. And it's not. And the same thing with mandates. You know, nobody wanted to do them and everybody knew there would be backlash and it would be contentious. But we've tried everything else. And we're now, you know, we were one of the, the early leaders in vaccination in the country. And now we're a laggard. We're the, in last place among developed countries in vaccination. We're paying the price. There are more cases, more deaths, more challenges in the schools than there would be if people got vaccinated. So I think everybody sort of came to the same place at the same time. We got to do something more and different. And I think they supported the governor and the state in being more aggressive as they have all the way through. So, for example, I know in in your city, in San Francisco, uh, you have to have vaccines, right, to go into uh, most indoor indoor venues. Uh, West Hollywood here in Southern California is starting that uh, in October. Uh, L.A. County just today uh, announced that uh, to go into things like bars and lounges, you're going to, as of next month, have to be vaccinated as well. Is it time, in your view, for the governor to make this now a state mandate to give cover to those cities that maybe are reluctant to, but also to make a, a really strong political and medical point? I'm in favor of mandates generally, and I think it's an open question whether it's best done at the state or the local level. I think some of that will hinge on you know what happens in the next few weeks. California is doing fairly well on vaccination, certainly a little bit ahead of the national average and things are moving along. But yeah, I would be in favor of of a statewide mandate. I think at this point, you know, we are going to be in this pickle for a very long time if we don't get more people vaccinated. You know, we're going to feel okay because cases are coming down now and hospitalizations aren't terrible. But come the weather changing or, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the winter if we don't get up to 70 or 80 percent vaccination as opposed to 50 or 60 this is going to keep happening over and over again. So I think it is time for us to say, what can we do differently that's going to get us to a better place? The Bay Area is at that level, is at 70 to 80 percent vaccination. And the surge we've had in the last few weeks was pretty mild and is, is down by about two thirds over the last uh, over the last couple of weeks. So it really does make a difference if you can get people vaccinated. Thank you very much. Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. You don't have to look all that hard these days to find a viral video of passengers on flights having a meltdown or acting belligerent over the FAA's mask requirement. Already, there have been about, well, 4,000 reports of unruly passengers just this year. The FAA has handed out more than a million dollars worth of civil penalties. And it's taking a toll on flight attendants. Matt Leon with KYW News Radio in Philadelphia spoke about these issues with Dr. Benjamin Altschuler. He's the assistant professor of travel and tourism at Temple University School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. You always hear about unruly passengers. I think it always makes, and I think it, it probably happens a lot more than we 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 know about in the you know in the pre-pandemic times. But there just seems to be something more about this sort of behavior that we're seeing right now. You know, maybe people got angry, had a little bit of this or a little bit of that, but, or that. But some of the stuff you hear about now, um, you know, I took a flight um, in June from Philadelphia to Salt Lake City. And we were talking to one of the flight attendants. And, you know, I don't know what's appropriate on a podcast, but the things they were saying to us that people were doing, not just yelling at them or getting in their face, but 
you know, damaging planes and stuff like that. I mean, that just is so it's bonkers to me. I mean, you know, for one thing, why would you want to do that? Who has the time to do that? But second of all, you're risking the safety of not only yourself, the flight attendants, the pilots and other people by doing this. I mean, who knows when this sort of behavior leads to some sort of in air sort of accident. So we've always known the unruly behavior was there, but I think as you pointed out, it's, it's gone up and the intensity of it is just, um, it's, it's bad. It's perplexing to me. It's baffling. I mean, you know, it's, it's truly bordering on, it's just, it's insane almost is what I would say. And I can only imagine the strain this is putting on crews specifically, I think flight attendants, because they're kind of the front line here. I mean, it's still a pandemic. It's a stressful job anyway, just because of the hours and the the nonstop travel and stuff like that. And now you put on top of this where you don't know what somebody's going to do and something's going to escalate all of a sudden from a disagreement to throwing punches. I mean, I've seen videos of flight attendants getting punched and stuff like this. What does this do to that labor force? I mean, I can't imagine how disheartening this is. Oh, I have to imagine it sends morale down. It's a huge impact to morale. I mean, let's be honest. Anytime you work in any industry, and if your clientele treats you poorly, it's going to be highly impactful to your morale. And, you know, I think sometimes people forget what flight attendants, you know, not just the basics of the job, you know, like, oh, you know, they bring me water and, and refreshments and things like that. But this is a job about safety. And, you know, I'm going to go back to a, a movie. I think it was that movie that Clint Eastwood did about um, Sully, the captain pilot who landed the, the plane in the river. And it's fascinating to watch that movie. And I would recommend people watch that movie when they found out there was going to be a crash landing to see how the flight attendants had to respond to that from going from just making the experience nice to taking on that everyone needs to be safe and, and all of these things. And we need to ensure that everyone's getting off the plane. There's no one left behind. I mean, this is a high intensity, high stress job. And I don't think we as passengers, fortunately, don't get to see it as much because fortunately we're not, you know, those sorts of situations don't happen a lot. But when you're in that sort of high intensity sort of position and people are not respecting you and doing this really terrible behavior, I mean, I start to ask myself, and I, I imagine a lot of flight attendants ask themselves, why Why should I do this? I mean, people don't care what we're doing, so why, sh why should we care? But that's the job. And it's one of the things we talk about is like emotional labor in that that's this expectation of flight attendants that no matter what somebody does, you keep that smile on your face and you keep on, you kind of keep on trucking through the issues, even though some of these issues and things you hear about as you were talking about are just, it's just horrendous. It turns out that some people have developed superhuman immunity against COVID-19. Most people who have both contracted COVID and are fully vaccinated have what is called hybrid immunity. A small number of these people, because of their genetics, now have so-called super immunity, superhuman immunity. Their bodies are able to develop very high levels of antibodies to fight off both present and future variants of COVID-19. Unfortunately, there's no test to determine if you are one of those people with superhuman immunity. Well, then how do we know they exist? Uh, if, they, there's, if there's no test, how do we know it's there? Those people wear capes. Oh. Well, again, we've learned something new from COVID. Yes. If you see a guy in a cape, yes. he has superhuman immunity. Or they're crazy. Or <laughs> it's, one the, it's one or the other. Yeah. All right. You know what? I can, I, I'm going to go with that. If a guy's in a cape, 
He's either got superhuman immunity or he's nuts. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if you really want to, you can find this Odyssey original podcast and others just like it on odyssey.com and the odyssey.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And please don't forget to hit the follow button.